we're thinking it. Where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. This is the Overthinking It book club, and we are reading Slaughterhouse-Five. This is the third installment of our six-part series, and we'll be discussing Chapter 5. I'm Ben Adams, and with me is a, a panel of overthinkers valiantly struggling to overthink a book like Slaughterhouse-Five. We, we really have to reach to try and get this a, a level of scrutiny it doesn't deserve. Uh, but we're going to try anyway. So first alphabetically is uh, the world's foremost expert on Slaughterhouse-Five, Shana Woloski. Hey, Ben. How are you doing? Hey, Shana. Uh, next to her, we have John Parrish. It was a pootie-wee. I like it. Yeah, that's the best I can do with this mic, sorry. <laughs> no worries. And next to him, we have Matt Rather. Hey, Matt. Hey, my face is like a radium dial. Yeah, it is. So it's, the only, it's the only one we can see. I like it. So it's dark without you. So we're just going to kick right off, uh, as we always do, in a German uh, prisoner of war camp. Uh, what, do you, what do you guys think? The, uh, well, the camp, I mean, the camp is, is a lot of things, right? Like, one of the things it is is uh, a microcosm for society and the world and life and everything. And I thought that, like, I know that the, uh, that the epitaph is perhaps more profound, uh, but I thought that please leave this latrine as tidy as you found it is as good as the Ten Commandments as moral <laughs> advice for living on the earth. I really like that scene, um, and I think we could definitely unpack it some more, because it's not like he just sees the sign. He's, like, high on morphine. He comes out, and uh, he is seeing this uh, set for Cinderella, I think. It's uh, been a while since I read this chapter. Um, and there's, like, this sign above him. Like, he thinks the words are just uh, floating above him, and <laughs> he sees what it actually says about the latrine. And it's just... Um, it's so fascinating, this whole chapter, how it has to deal with, uh, I guess, theater and theatrics um, because of that Cinderella bit. And before that, um, the Englishmen were also doing Pirates of Penzance, both of which, and we could talk about this later, um, have to do with time and like weird time frames. Um, but um, last week, we were talking about the like, artifice and the artificiality of being in a zoo. And I guess because this chapter was really focusing on artifice as well, it's sort of, um, com- uh, I don't know, uh, comparing, contrasting the zoo to this prisoner of war camp in an interesting way, I think. But uh, do you think the same thing, guys? Or am I making this up in my head? Yeah, the the experience of him wandering through the dark and seeing this sign, which appears to him to be floating in midair, is, I guess, to take the overthink out of it for a little, one of the most eminently relatable experiences in this entire chapter, in that who among us hasn't, you know, woken in a strange place at some point, woken up in a bed that we don't usually sleep in, like a hotel or a guest's or a guest room somewhere, and like wandered around trying to find the bathroom and just been completely mystified at the relationship of spaces in the dark. Like, you know, sort of paused haltingly in front of a wall and been like, is that really a wall or is there still more space there? What's, what's going on? So it's that it's that weird perception of space, which is similar in, I guess, blindness to how the Tralfalmadorans describe Billy Pilgrim's perception of time. Because one of the things that's mentioned in the zoo chapters is the Tralfalmadorans themselves struggle with describing how Billy Pilgrim, and therefore how all Earth creatures, perceive time to exist. And this is an interesting little parallel in that Billy Pilgrim is 
interpreting the things in front of him as best he can, given his intoxication, fatigue, slight morphine high, and the fact that he just jumped backwards in time. So it looks like words are floating in the air and mean things very significant to him, when in fact it's there are perfectly mundane explanations for all of them. I have another thought about this scene that uh, just hit me because it has to do with shit, so it's very exciting to me, is that right after um, he sees the sign about the latrine, um, which (laughs) says, please leave the latrine as you found it, someone completely does not leave the latrine as he found it and happens to be Kurt Vonnegut, um, who is, quote, (laughs) shitting his brains out. um, Which That was I. That was me. That was the author of this book. Exactly. So he says he's shitting out his brain, which is uh, which is kind of interesting and hilarious in a meta literary way, because you could say that his book is like shitting out his brains onto the page in a way. So I guess the, if you read it that way, the question is, um, if the latrine is sort of symbol of the world, and you want to l- leave the latrine as you found it, or leave the world as you found it, and uh, then Vonnegut, the author, is shitting out his brains on it and sort of destroying it, is he sort of saying that his book is like a shit stain on the world um, as opposed to something valuable? Because this whole chapter is about art and literature, and especially science fiction literature um, in the form of Kilgore Trout books, and whether it is valuable, whether the written word, whether it's, you know, please leave this latrine as you found it, or Billy's Tombstone, everything was beautiful and nothing hurt, and there are some other uh, bits as well, but the question is, um, is this writing valuable in any way whatsoever? Well, the one of the I mean, one of the things one of the answers to that question is no. Right. Or like one of the questions that the that the book proposes is no. Right. Like if uh, if all the wars that have ever happened are always happening and always will happen uh, and always have happened. Right. And there's no uh, preventing them. Um even even with the foreknowledge, which is also the retrospective knowledge, which is also the current knowledge uh, of them, right? Uh, the book doesn't help. I mean, in that it doesn't sort of help prevent, uh, it doesn't help prevent war, you know? But I think that there's, I think that there's something else going on, right? Like, I think that the, I think the case is being made for um, not so much for the uh, intrinsic, not so much for the instrumental value of literature, but more something like for the, uh, for the intrinsic value of literature, something that's sort of, um, something that's sort of valuable in itself because it's the closest we have to sort of getting inside another person's head for communicating like the Tralfamadorians do, uh, you know, telepathically, just sending, I mean, the, the image of the, the guide at the zoo, just sort of sending brainwaves out, um, to the, uh, out to the people. Uh, it's, this is sort of the closest that, that, that we get to brainwaves to sort of entering another, another person's experience because there's like a rich, um, there's a rich set of tools of literary tools for for sort of uh, for sort of conveying experience. So so that it's it's not necessarily that that Kirk Vonnegut that this is Kirk Vonnegut's shit stain on the world. It's more that like why would he portray himself as leaving a shit stain on the world? Right? Like what what does ha- what does that have to do with the larger you know artistic and moral project? Um, 
one of the things I think it has to do is the is the like the uh, pathetic drop right, which happens a lot in the uh, which happens a lot is one of the big techniques of this uh, of this novel right. Like when uh, Billy's going home on the train uh, from his training, he's he finally blessedly gets to sleep. Uh, on the train and is informed by the train conductor that boy did he have a heart on the whole time that he was uh, that he was sleeping on the train right like that that undercutting move or that sort of drop I think is what's happening here with all the with this like uh, with this um, uh, tableau of tableau of shitting privates uh, right <laughs> who who uh, uh, who greet the stumbling um, who greet this sort of stumbling Billy in his drug-induced haze, uh, in his disoriented state, having just received a message from uh, a message from God, a fourth-dimensional gospel, uh, to leave this latrine of the world, this latrine of life, cleaner than than he found it. Right? Like, um, I don't know. Maybe there was a point somewhere in in there. Ben, no, 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 no. Yeah, let me. <laughs> there was. Let, let me offer. I, I, not that I, not to disagree, but let me offer a slightly alternative take because this is kind of working in with a, a larger theory I've been working on about the book, which is that it's not. While it is an anti-war book, I, I'm not 100 percent certain that the primary project of the book is to actually convince people as as a matter of rhetoric not to. Uh, commit further massacres that, that I'm not sure it's, this is necessarily aimed at actually changing minds. I think as much as anything, it's a project of, it's a personal project of Kurt Vonnegut trying to shit his brains out, trying to get rid of all the memories and the associated, so somehow trying to process all the horrible things that he saw, uh, because that that's presumably what is causing this disjuncture is that we have this crazy narrative because there's just no way of him exp- or there's no linear way of him expressing the horrible, horrible things that he saw in Dresden. And so he, he wishes he could, the, the, the function of pooping your brains out is to get rid of all that stuff, to get rid of all the backup, to get rid of all the nastiness that's not supposed to be in there. And in his case, that might include his brains because those brains are the source of these horrible memories that he has to deal with every night. I'm not sure, though, that he wants to get rid of it um, because I was thinking um, of that scene, where was it, in my notes, um, where the, um, all the prisoners are supposedly, they're, they're lost in the war, they're presumed dead, but then they get their names and numbers written down in this log, so, quote, everybody was legally alive now. Now that they're written down, they are people again, and it's, you know, a silly situation, um, there, there is a joke there but it's also kind of serious um there's this idea throughout the book that um we have to write down um our experiences to keep them alive maybe not in a moving way but it sort of in a sort of like a photograph like keep things in amber um so that people remember it um this is the second time, I think, that uh, Vonnegut inserted himself into the novel and said, like, that was me, I was there. Um, and it's not going to be the last time he says it, I don't think. So I think that might be the major project of the book, is just to, n- not necessarily to purge himself of these memories, but just to um, 
tell himself and tell the world that he was there because maybe um, there is like this ironic distance throughout this book, um, this sense of alienation. Maybe he feels sort of alienated from the, the memory, as he said in the first chapter of the book. He didn't really remember much of anything, just like little snippets here and there. So maybe part of his um, his goal here is to um, convince himself that he was actually there as well. The the idea um, that he's he's trying to purge, uh, he's trying to purge these thoughts uh, that you're taking issue with. Um, might might maybe we can harmonize it a little by noting that the the men are are made sick by their dinner, right? Like they've been starved more or less on the uh, in the boxcar on their way to the prison. Um, and the, uh, the they eat this rich meal with this warm milk uh, with the the English who are hoarding food, you know, and uh, they just can't take it, right? Their stomachs can't take the the richness of the thing. So it's almost an involuntary purging of of brains. And I, you know, that's sort of something that that seems to happen a lot in this book to to Billy, and maybe that um, maybe that uh, uh, Vonnegut is saying that he is there too, right? in the involuntary, uh, in the, the area of involuntary purge, where he, he doesn't control uh, when, he, when he travels in time, right? He, he doesn't seem to control uh, a lot of things about his body, right? On the, on the, the boxcar, they said to him, you kick, you kick and like convulse and thrash in, in your sleep. Um, he doesn't control, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, this this sort of dance that's presented, this kind of horrible scene when he's ca- caught in barbed wire and is kind of pulling convulsively against it. Uh, he's described as like a, a dancing scarecrow or or something like that. There's there's all this sort of sense of of uh, involuntary. Um, involuntary motion. Actually, jiggling would be an interesting motif to read this book through, right? The jiggling uh, of the scarecrow, the jiggling of him in his sleep, um, the uh, the jiggling of the magic fingers bed, uh, his uh, the magic fingers bed in his home uh, that he sleeps on um, that can't can't ever seem to jiggle him to sleep though. And all of the ups and downs as well throughout the book of you know Billy Pil- Pilgrim walking you know bobbing up and down and then in uh, this chapter in a more you know metaphorical sense you know the Valley of the Dolls the plot going up and down for the characters as well so maybe that jiggling is supposed to. Um, I don't know, in a weird way, uh, represent like the way our lives, you know, move up and down, um, but don't really go anywhere. I, maybe that is the the type of motion he's getting at. So one thing, one thing I do want to call attention to, since we're talking about sickness briefly, is the instance of the officers preparing this rich meal for the the American prisoners and they go in, the author goes into a lot of detail about you know how they they knew the prisoners were coming so they spent 12 hours preparing this meal and their clothes are redolent of the cooking aroma and goes in a lot of detail about laying out the little tableau for each prisoner like the safety rays of the chocolate bars i think it's the first instance we've seen so far in the novel of someone being kind to someone else like just deliberately and simply and gently kind. And the one thing the one thing I noted is that there's not a lot of attention called to it in 
the reactions of the other people. Like, we don't see people breaking down and weeping or clasping the English officers with gratitude or anything like that, especially not Billy Pilgrim, who, you know, just sort of plods along in the way that he plods along through everything. But it, it it's it's noteworthy in that neither the cruelty of the Germans in the prior chapters nor the extreme generosity of the British in this chapter has met with any sort of extreme emotional reaction. People are just sort of inured to it at this point. Yeah, there is a lot of kindness in this chapter, isn't there? Um, we have uh, Derby is sort of officially introduced in this chapter, um, and when uh, Billy's sort of out of it, he, he wakes up for a moment, and uh, Derby's reading, um, I forget if he's reading it to him, uh, the Red Badge of Courage, uh, um, and Jeremy's just a good guy, as we will see as we go on. Um, and also there is his, I guess you would call uh, him a friend. I can't imagine, though, Billy Pilgrim having any friends, but he has uh, Elliot Rosewater, who uh, gives him the Kilgore Shroud books and puts him on his science fictional path. So, yeah, uh, so that's a really good point. I didn't realize how the kindness starts coming in through this chapter. It's interesting. It's kindness of a particular kind, though, right? Because <laughs> a particular kind. <laughs> Zing. Um, yeah. It's, it's not ineffectual, but it's sort of, it sort of misses the point, doesn't it? Right? Like, it's a kindness that, that makes them sick. And, and it, it is sort of completely, uh, I don't know, completely fails to address the horror of, of what they're actually encountering. And when they, when they actually encounter the, the horror of these American enlisted, right, they're all... Uh, horrified, you know, they're, they're, what is it? They're catatonic with disgust or something. Um, at looking at the, uh, at the shit symphony in the latrine, right? They're, they think that, that these American enlisted are, uh, are a dirty, like, ragtag and not like a scrappy ragtag, but like a, a gross ragtag, uh, sort of collection of bums. And this is where the, uh, uh, uh what's his name? Mr. Campbell's Disquisition um, is sort of inserted as an as an intertext uh, about the uh, the sort of the horror of the American poor, uh, how they are they have no self respect and so or no self love, so they don't love each other and everyone hates them. Uh, how every other army in history has tried to make. Uh, you know, even their lowliest soldiers look impressive and, and mighty and the, and the Americans don't, they kind of mass produce, uh, terrible uniforms for them. Um, that, you know, and, and the, uh, the English, uh, the officers come uh, and, and I think it's important that they're English because it's connected with, a uh, a more stratified class system, you know, system of, of aristocracy, uh, not just, uh, not just of money aristocracy, but of hereditary nobility. Um, the, the officers can't stand, can't stand them. They come around to this, uh, this hatred of the poor, um, that is, that is supposed to be a, a, um, that's supposed to be a, 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 a feature of, of American society. But like, so you're, yeah. Your reference to uh, your reference to both Elliot Rosewater and Howard Campbell uh, is a neat springing off point to to point out that these are two characters who appear in other works of Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, I had to I had to Google a little and, and confirm that these are two characters who appear in previous novels. But uh, 
Howard Campbell is the protagonist of Mother Night, Vonnegut's 1961 novel, and Elliot Rosewater, or I think it's the same Rosewater, might be a different Rosewater, is the protagonist of God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, which is a 1965 novel. Uh, but both of the characters are pretty much as described in those uh, in those novels. Like they they are not being misrepresented here. So, what do we? I, I guess the question is, what do we? What do we think of that? Is, is this? Is this Vonnegut's attempt to create some sort of like Lovecraftian, all-consuming mythos that unites all of his fictional works into one universe? Is it his attempt to further highlight the unreality of the setting by introducing these two known fictional characters? Three, if you count Kilgore Trout, who appears in many, many Vonnegut novels. What's, uh, what's the deal? Well, to what end? I mean, what do you think would be accomplished if it were... You know, if if there if you could draw a continuity through through all of, of Vonnegut's uh, novels, um, I I don't that think is to I don't say, think it would I answer the question you posed by question. posing another question. That's fair. I don't think it would accomplish much, just because like I don't I don't think this is like I don't think this is like the obsessives who pick apart you know Kubrick's work on The Shining and attempt to divine some deeper meaning from it. I think if you created some overarching meta continuity of the Vonnegut novels it would be a mess it would be highly amusing and Vonnegut or his heirs or assigns or interpreters if they could look at it would be like yeah that that really doesn't that really doesn't add anything that's not at all what Vonnegut was going for Vonnegut wasn't creating some overarching super logic to lay on top of the absurdity and chaos of the 20th century he wasn't he wasn't creating a reason behind the unreason well, it's I, I agree with that. The, <laughs> it's <laughs> interesting because the the references to the fake books are superimposed in, in this chapter in particular with a lot of references to actual books by other authors. We have references to Valley of the Dolls. We already mentioned Red Badge of Courage. I think uh, the Brothers Karamazov is also in here. So he's kind of mixing up the fictional authors with the uh, real authors in this case. I love uh, how the Brothers Karamazov comes up. It's right, like, before the Brothers Karamazov was, uh, uh, was enough, right? Like, there was enough in Dostoevsky to, like, give meaning to life. Now, uh, after World War II, we need Kilgore Trout, you know? The, we can't, like, um, oh, what's the name of the character in Brothers K? Father Zosima, uh, right? The, the wisdom is not, uh, uh, his wisdom is not enough for us. We need, we need uh, the gospel from the fourth dimension. Right. And of course, there's also, before we get off the prison, there's an implicit reference in this book, I think, to The Great Escape. Uh, Google yes. uh, The Great Escape came up. out in, in 1963. So it had to, and it was one of the biggest movies of that year. So it had to have been on his mind when he was writing these POW scenes where he's talking about, you know, these 50 British officers that have been in the, you know, the POW camp since the beginning of the war, and they've all tried to escape. And how did the Germans respond to this? Well, they simply put them into a sea of Russians because, like, that, that's how you keep people in a prison is you don't, like, have to make a super prison. You just have to make it really, really big and surrounded with a bunch of, like, starving enlisted men. Um, and, of course, in contrast, in, in The Great Escape, the two Americans are James Garner and Steve McQueen, who are, who are exactly the kind of, you know, protagonists that Kurt Vonnegut at the beginning said he wasn't going to write a book about. And so instead we have this like kind of starving rabble of American enlisted men. 
Well, also the thing about uh, James Garner and Stephen McQueen, and I looked this up and did the math, was that um, when they were in that movie, Stephen McQueen was 33 and James Garner was 35. So much older than you would expect um, people within a a war to be, um, especially when we're talking about this being the children's crusade and how they were all babies when they were in it. Um, And... It um, you could compare that to Derby, who is this old guy, you know, relatively speaking, in war, who um, is I don't want to say the most heroic character because no one's really a hero in this book, but a character who is a, a good guy in a way most of the other characters are not. Um, and uh, throughout, we're just seeing how, I guess this chapter specifically, but the entire book, undercutting um, the tropes of movies like this, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we could talk about all of the other um, works of literature and, you know, movies and theatrical works that are mentioned uh, throughout this chapter. I uh, yes. read Badge of so Courage, as I said thing. before. Uh, yeah. Yes, uh, the Pirates of Penzance song yes. is, is not actually a Pirates of Penzance song. It is, a to- it is a song that uses a tune from Pirates of Penzance because, you know, it was in the public domain. But the song was written uh, about 20 to 30 years after the, the Gilbert and Sullivan operetta actually aired oh and that's like the cinderella song where they rewrote the lyrics as well and it was so hilarious i don't know if it was the words specifically that were so hilarious to billy or just the the discrepancy between uh, like the tone of the words and the tone of the song um that made him laugh so hard that they actually had to you know drug him and take him away but the funny thing about the pirates of penzance and and cinderella as i said before is that um uh, they they both are sort of linked to uh weird time situations um because if and tell me if I'm misremembering this, but in the Pirates of Penzance, it's about a guy who um, is born in a leap year. Is that correct? So someone, someone remind me. Uh, uh, it's it's not purely about that, but that is a that is a plot point. That is a plot yes, right, correct. and and therefore um, he has to uh, remain, uh, you know, with the with the pirates for uh, you know many more years than he would otherwise, because um, he only has a birthday every four years. So it's this like interesting time compression as well, and you know, done in a humorous fashion. Um, so I can see why Vonnegut would be interested in that little operetta. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, and also, it, it is it is a, it is an interesting reference. Yeah, you're not wrong. So let's let's move on <laughs> and talk. Other ones? About, let, let's move on actually and talk about uh, Billy Pilgrim's time in uh, Trafalmador, his time in the zoo, as it were. Well, yeah, we can continue talking about you know literature in that sense, like the Trafalmadorian you know telegrams that they have, which um, I guess remind me somewhat of haiku in a sense because they're they're short and you're just supposed to sort of take it in all at once and get sort of an image um, or a feeling as opposed to reading a story um, you know with causality. Um, you can you know contrast that with Valley of the Dolls, where like there's a lot of incident but um, it's not something you want to read over and over again because it's just like a bunch of stuff in a row and one leads to another and leads to another um, as opposed to something that communicates in, I don't know, a less straightforward fashion in a, a, I don't know, more of a gut punch or that's not the right word, but... But it's almost the way the, the Trophimadorians de- describe it is almost like an epiphany, right? Like almost yes, a meditative 
uh, epiphany reading them, and you get this sense. It's 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 almost like it's not just a haiku; it's like all the haiku, right? At the same time, uh, you know, and you sort of understand there's something sublime communicated by simultaneously uh, understanding uh, all the uh, all the haiku, uh, and there's no right, there's no plot, there's no suspense, there's no heroes and villains, there's just this sort of sense of beauty um, conveyed through the uh, conveyed through the the simultaneous experience of these uh, of these telegrams right these and I mean telegram is interesting right we talked in the first episode about pneumatic tube and um, uh, pneumatic tube and what telephone and all the all the kind of means the technological means of communication and here there's another like image of a technology uh, of communication, a sort of mediating, uh, a mediating device, right? Like, and if the Trofamadorian novels are like, are like telegrams, I wonder what the, uh, I wonder what the, um, the, uh, earthling novels with the human novels are like, right? Like what are they like plays like, uh, Cinderella or, or operettas like Cinderella or Penzance? Are they, um, you know, how are they? Uh, how are they different? I mean, it's an interesting sort of it's an interesting sort of theory of literature that's that's put forward. I mean, I want to ask if how do these telegrams differ from the works of Kilgore Trout? What we see of them, because um, you know he says or someone says that he can't really write for shit, but he has some really good ideas. So it seems like Kilgore Trout writes the way that Vonnegut writes in this book. And we were talking last week, I think uh, Jordan was complaining about how bland the language in this book is and, you know, how short and staccato some of the sentences are. So, you know, very telegram-like, right? Um, And I guess the... And also the way Vonnegut describes Kilgore Trout's novels, he doesn't actually give us pieces of them the way he did uh, with Campbell's stuff where we actually got a whole passage of it. He just describes... Um, you know, in the third person, what happened, you know, just a beginning, middle, and here's the moral of the story um, in the shortest, you know, blandest way possible. And I guess the question I have is, like, is that sort of story meant to approximate what the Trafalmadorians use in their art, or are they supposed to be completely separate? Um, are we supposed to contrast them, I suppose? I think it's. I think it's supposed to be a very obvious parallel. I think we're we're supposed to pick up on that. I mean, given the fact that the novel, you know, very deliberately comes unstuck in time, that it sort of jumps all over the place and tells several anecdotes that don't have an immediately obvious relationship to each other, like Billy's trip to the Grand Canyon and Billy being in a prison camp and Billy on his wedding night and Billy in a hospital. So, I mean, aside from the fact that they all they all happen to the one person, there's no obvious relationship to them, and it's deliberately contrasted with a popular novel of the period, Valley of the Dolls, which I don't know if it really had a moral, but you were supposed to have an obvious takeaway to it, which is, wow, these people are hopped up on a lot of uh, prescription meds and having a lot of sleazy relationships with each other. I'm titillated by this, and yet I I feel at the end that this is not a life I should live. That is my takeaway from from this novel, and it's sort sort of obvious as a result. Uh, Vonnegut is contrasting, I think Vonnegut is pretty clearly contrasting his work with that in that there is not an obvious moral, 
there is not uh, an obvious sequence of events and his work, he thinks, will not be popular or entertaining. But do you think when you read um, either um, the summaries of Kilgore Trout's work or imagine reading the entire, an entire Kilgore Trout novel, um, that you would have that epiphany, that feeling of epiphany that you would have uh, theoretically if you uh, were experiencing Trafalmadorian literature? I mean, even if it has the sort of telegram-like prose, I'm not sure that we can, you know, I don't think Kilgore Trout novels are haiku in that uh, in the sense of aesthetics. So I'm not sure that we could say that. And I see Kilgore Trout obviously as sort of a parodic stand-in for Vonnegut. So I, I'm just questioning whether he, you know, I think he wants his book on the one, this, uh, Slaughterhouse Five to be like the Trafalmadorian artwork. But I think he also knows that he's more like Kilgore Trout and sort of like a little bit of a hack, perhaps, you know, or maybe he could be both at the same time, if that's even possible. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Well, and Kilgore Trout has his own kind of version of the, 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 you know, you can't make an anti-war movie here where he's basically saying, like, it's it's very difficult to make your book have the right moral. And he specifically calls out the gospel here for having having the wrong lesson that uh, that what the Jesus story really teaches you is that before you kill somebody, make absolutely sure he isn't well connected. And then he kind of tries to fix the gospel and change it to a different story to have the correct motive. Uh, But I think what we're told about Kilgore Trout is him not being necessarily the best writer is he simply doesn't have the the skill to do what the Trafalmordian, the Trafalmordians do where they can just kind of mainline the moral directly into your brain. And I think Vonnegut is, is admitting that even though he's trying to do this in this book, and, and probably succeeds as well as any Earthling can, I mean, the, the short length of the book and the disjointed style, I think, makes it easier than most books to try and digest as kind of a whole instead of what we're doing and picking apart every single chapter. Um, but I think he's kind of saying this is still something that's extremely hard to do to get people to take away the right moral from a from a book, and and the right moral. I think it's interesting, like what he says. What he says the right moral is, and it's. I, I think it's probably wrong to identify uh, Vonnegut with with Kilgore Trout completely. But I I think that the the um, the force of this chapter, this chapter six. Uh, goes along with the force of um you know with the with the force of the the gospel from the fourth dimension that's what it's called right it's the fourth dimensional gospel or is it like the gospel from outer space or something Kilgore Trout's gospel right which is that you know don't mess with someone uh don't mess with someone even if he's a bum right um and the the sort of the uh, um, Campbell's disquisitions that get put in about the the horror uh, of the American poor and the horror that the officers come to feel for uh, 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 for the American enlisted um, Billy's daughter later on sort of uh, the, the satisfaction that she takes in sort of um, taking away his dignity in the name of love, which is a, I mean, you know, uh, Jordan's got to read that, right? <laughs> like there, there is a fine turn of phrase if ever there, uh, if ever there was one. Um, the, uh, 
you know, it's it seems to be like on the side of the bums, on the side of the of the downtrodden, um, and trying to uh, if if not like even dignify them, but uh, trying to sort of convey. Uh, their experience, and I think one one slightly occult reference is uh, is Mr. Lazaro, who who comes up uh, a lot in this chapter, and I I think that like um, his name and his sores, uh, I think we're re- uh, meant to recall uh, Lazarus from the Gospel of Luke, not. Um, not the Lazarus who was read, uh, who was risen from the the dead, one of the miracles, but Lazarus who shows up in the parable um, uh, of the rich man who who you know lives in in the lap of luxury, and Lazarus the beggar at his gate who is leprous and covered in sores, and um, and the dogs uh, come and lick. Uh, lick his his sores, um, and then they die, and uh, Lazarus is taken up into abraham 's bosom, and the rich man is in the fires of Hades. And he says, "No, they, you know uh, calls up uh, you know Abraham, you know, let Lazarus dip his little finger in water and like send me a drop of water to slake my my thirst uh, and Abraham says uh, you you uh, look now you 're getting yours, you know lazarus didn 't um, Right, like Lazarus didn't uh, get anything in life, and now you're going to suffer suffer sort of eternal damnation. Right, like the 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 uh, the compensatory fantasy of that, I think, is is important to the to the sort of social moral message that is that comes up a lot uh, in this in this chapter. Right, like it's not the it's not the um, it's not the guards with their nice linen and their private boxcar that we're concerned with. It's the sort of rolling shit factory of of the uh, you know this kind of morass uh, of of what is it like the the squirming farting carpet of humanity or some such description um, in the boxcar that we're you know that we're concerned with in this chapter. Um, just to go off point, I was looking at my notes. Why are drafts knobs covered with velvet? <laughs> like, really? <laughs> well, speaking, speaking of knobs, we have to mention that we, we, we talked in the first podcast about, you know, what, what does this book have to offer the ladies? And, uh, and we, we discover in this book that, uh, Billy Pilgrim is extremely, uh, well hung because, uh, you never yes, know who will get Yes, the tremendous wang. Yes. <laughs> can't, say, can't use a euphemism. You have to say he has a tremendous wang. Tremendous well, I was looking for the, I was looking for the correct page. So, that, so there we go. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but what do we think of the introduction of, uh, of Montana here? It's the, uh, the uh, sorry, one more thing about his tremendous wang. I like oh, the, the, the single. Could you expand on that? He had a tremendous wang incidentally right just by the by you know billy pilgrim had an had a uh, tremendous wang and the next the next line is you never know who will get one right which is sort of about this sort of arbitrary the arbitrary distribution of resources right the un- <laughs> the unjust uh distribution that's just sort of baked into um uh, that's just sort of baked in. Uh, that's not the first Wang in the first incidents of Wangs in this chapter, by the way, right? There are there are lots of tiny shriveled Wangs uh, in the delousing, um, you know, scalding shower scene because they're also everyone is. Uh, 
uh, is that this chapter is that the previous one? Everyone is so uh, starving and and uh, freezing that um, all their all their genitals all their genitals retract. But but back, but back to Montana. Well, actually, can I ask a question? Um, and it's going to seem when I ask this question like I have an answer, but I actually think the opposite of that answer, which is, do you think maybe the tremendous Wang, along with Montana Wild Hack being in the zoo there, and she's very beautiful, she's a, a movie star, she's 20 or 21 years old, she has like a porn star name, um, could this be alluding to the fact that all of this stuff in outer space is meant to be Billy Pilgrim's fantasy? Um, they're supposed to be Adam and Eve, like his imagination that finally he is in a place of innocence again with, um, you know, this really hot chick. And uh, he has a, like a giant penis now so he can do whatever he wants with it. I mean, I don't actually agree with that reading at all. But I think the suggestion is there that we're supposed to think, um, just for a second maybe, that um, this might not be real. It's just, and I not that, that you want to live in a zoo forever, but for Billy, that's like the perfect situation. He's very happy there. I mean, not very happy, like as happy as he was on Earth, you know, as yeah, happy as he can be. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's his literal reaction to it. I, th- I think the novel is written a way to allow that reading. And I would, I would go so far as to say that Vonnegut probably wrote the novel deliberately in a way to allow that reading. Because he, he never talks about the Tralfalmadorans with anyone else. And there are a lot of novels where there are a lot of Vonnegut novels where people tend to live crazy interior lives, but uh, they often end or they often feature at least one other character who shares in this interior life. I'm thinking of Vonnegut's novel Slapstick. I'm thinking of, again, Mother Night, which we referenced earlier, uh, where there's at least one other human being who can corroborate the weirdness that the narrator or the protagonist is going through. And in here, that's not the case. Billy Pilgrim is, I believe, the only one who talks about Tralfalmadorans, with the possible exception of Kilgore Trout. Uh, I think one of the novels that uh, Rosewater describes, or lends to Billy or whatever, one of the novels that Rosewater reads, describes aliens who either look like or have a similar perception of time to the Tralfamadoran. So it's I possible. Think that was the gospel, actually. Yeah, the, the gospel, possibly. So it's it's possible that Billy simply invented these uh, these aliens in his uh, in his head, in his morphine slash PTSD slash general brain damagedness uh, condition. Well, I mean, if that's the case, then Billy is imagining himself as the Jesus figure in this alien gospel, right? Since I have to say that Billy Pilgrim is a Jesus figure, and so there. That is how I have brought it into the conversation today. Bam. Cause he it's, it's possible, certainly, although Jesus in this case doesn't bring a lot of wisdom to uh, to the chosen people, they they tend to bring more wisdom to him, and in, in the in the exchange. Oh yeah, I mean he's not a good Jesus figure. <laughs> he's like uh, <laughs> the knockoff Jesus. He's the, like bad Jesus. Is that like bad Santa with yeah, Billy yeah. Bob Thornton, or bad Grandpa with Johnny Knoxville, <laughs> or bad teacher? <laughs> Don't forget the distaff version. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I, uh, Ben. What did you think of of Montana? You 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 uh, you bring her up. I mean, I think her name I, her name is interesting, right? Like she's this uh, she is this wilderness. 
Well, it's, it's the one thing that's interesting is more how Billy reacts to her. Because this is one of the few times where we see him kind of taking actually an action, not just kind of like things occurring to him. So like when he when she wakes up and he's there, he like takes care of her and builds a relationship with her before they they get to the sexy times, you know, a week later. Um, But this is one of the few times we've actually seen Billy Pilgrim like actively seem to have a goal, like carry out actions in order to accomplish that goal and then accomplish that goal. Which is another suggestion that this is all in his imagination. Like maybe he believes that or he wants to do something and just in his regular life, he can't. He's also a better host. He gives his prison orientation, right, is better than the English uh, officer's prison orientation. You know, he's he's more uh, uh, sympathetic, you know, and and more useful ultimately, right? Rather than rather than singing, rather than like doing a uh, doing a musical, which is you know the last thing a bunch of sick, starving uh, American soldiers need. Um, miserable seething farting mass of humanity that they are right he uh he tries to comfort her he sort of explains stuff to uh to her right like he he uh does his best to ease her ease her transition uh into the uh into the dome-like enclosure that they are placed in he also compares her body to the quote fantastic architecture in Dresden before it was bombed, which uh, that's an interesting comparison, right? So, I mean, maybe he is taking care of her as a, you know, a form of penance or the, a way to, I guess, in a strange fashion, go back in time and prevent the bombing um, of Dresden slash Montana, uh, Wild Hack, I don't know. Maybe uh, this is getting convoluted, but um, I think there is a link between him protecting her and not being able to protect Dresden. Yeah, I, I, and, and it's, it, go ahead, Ben. Oh, so I think there is something to that because we know that the first time Billy started to drift in time, which is we're, we're told is a separate phenomenon for being kidnapped by the the aliens, but nonetheless, the, the first time he drifts in time is right before he gets captured by the Germans. So there's kind of a Billy before being captured by the Germans and a Billy after being captured by the Germans, which is, of course, the Billy that witnessed the bombing of Dresden. And so there's there's kind of a preservation of innocence going on here when he when he travels into the space. It's fun. You know, I mean, I think Bruce Willis is going to come and tell me not to try to work out the uh, not to try to work out the details of the time travel here. But it's it's the first time he becomes aware of being unstuck in time. But if he's going back to the Grand Canyon when he's a kid, right, like he must be um, he must be always unstuck in time (laughs) uh, a little bit, but only becomes aware of it. uh, In that. Yeah. I mean, I thought it might have had something to do with weary um you know with the sort of cruelty uh with the cruelty of of weary um and and uh and that being being sort of that being the thing that that makes him unstuck in time i mean it's 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 funny like does unstuckness in time happen gradually well like a couple questions right is unstuckness in time something that's just gonna happen to some people why you why any of us why me why why you why anybody you know are you getting my grandma (laughs) that's it's in the 
you know, um, it's from the chapter, uh, but uh, <laughs> but the uh, but uh, you know is that is that just going to happen? I mean, even if he did not uh, happen to live in a time uh, when he would have to go to war, would he become unstuck in time? I don't think so. But that's that's a possibility, right? Like, is it something that gradually happens to him through uh, uh, through? You know, sustained inhumanity, or sort of uh, a sharp act of cruelty from weary, or is it something that that happens ex post facto, as it were, from the specific enormous trauma uh, of the bombing, right? Like of of Dresden, that that and and it kind of that event kind of reverberates backward and forward. Um, throughout his life and it's like anti-time billy anti-time uh you know where where it happens right like is unstuckness in time uh, could it have been avoided uh i guess i guess is the question for for this character right like is there is there a version in which is there a good version Right, like um, in tragedy, there's often like an if only moment uh, where it's where you can kind of see the the other branch down the game tree where the message gets delivered or the thing happens on time, um, you know, and uh, and the the series of dominoes doesn't doesn't fall. I, I don't see that for Billy in this in this book. I don't know if you folks do though. I mean, I think. Uh, I think you're right on. Um, I think uh, I said this last week or the week before that to a certain extent, everyone in the book is unstuck in time. It just Billy is um, more overtly stuck, uh, unstuck in time and he knows, notices it. Um, I mean, throughout this chapter, we had more uh, time flattening and all, uh, time dilation, I guess. Like, um, for example, when he's having sex with his wife, um, Valencia apparently fantasizes that she's Queen Elizabeth and he's Christopher Columbus. Um, so not only is she sort of taking herself out um to another time period she is imagining that her husband is in the past but in a completely separate time period um and you know throughout this novel you have uh people trying to be in the past but they are conflating different eras of history so i mean this isn't really something that is particular to billy he's just the only one who really notices it and sort of actually travels from period to period as opposed uh to just like making weird connections in his brain do you guys follow the transitions as like being specifically related to the material being specifically prepared by the material that that uh precedes them sometimes yes sometimes no i mean um in this chapter, once or twice, I mean, he's, uh, Vonnegut sort of underlines it. Um, like, uh, I guess, um, first you have him going to the Grand Canyon, and then, like, directly after, he goes to the Carlsbad Caverns. Okay, so there's, like, a direct link from one place to the other. And then later on, he connects that explicitly to his dad throwing him into the deep end of the pool um, because, you know, when you're on the rim of the Grand Canyon, it might be like being on the edge of a pool before you're going to be thrown into it. So, yeah, sometimes Monica is like, see, there's a connection between these two 
things that are next to each other. Um, but other times, I guess, not really. Um, I said last week that um, some of the transitions from one scene to another um, were very similar to, um, you know, a PTSD symptom. Like you hear a siren, actually Billy did hear a siren and then immediately flashed back to the war. Um, so, yeah, that's a more direct connection, of course. There's also, once again, the parallel uh, as evoked by brands or products, you know, the way that Americans anchor themselves in, in time and space. There's the radium dial in Carlsbad Caverns, which his dad takes out in the dark, which is kind of a dick move, I, I yeah. think, but neither here nor there. Sort of and it's the experience, right? Yes. And the, uh, the, the uh, soldiers' faces like, or lit like radium dials in uh, the prison camp. And we have the, the parallel with... Uh, Billy's then fiance, soon to be wife, eating a Three Musketeers chocolate bar, which is the same candy bar that was being eaten by the uh, veteran reporter who Vonnegut was working with in uh, Chapter One, back when he was uh, sort of doing field work and taking notes uh, when he was a journalist. We're the Three Musketeers and the extra fourth one that we don't want to be here. But I'm not telling you who's who. Uh oh. <laughs> But guys, we're the three musketeers. I mean, actually, there are two musketeers, right? And and a third delusional musketeer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the fourth guy, who the delusional guy thinks is not the uh, the three musketeers. Well, he's he's the Milky Way bar that she she goes to next because he he goes to space. Huh. See, it's all connected. Oh oh snap! Well done, sir. <laughs> I'm hungry. Thanks a lot. No problem. Well, let's uh, let's, uh, let's go real quick for for some last thoughts here. Uh, I'll just note one thing that I I thought was interesting about the the Grand Canyon imagery, uh, and I admit I, I maybe I don't exactly know what the state of uh, geology was in 1960s, but I, I think this this at least as much was uh, was pretty well firmly established that when you're looking at the Grand Canyon, it's one of the few times where you can kind of take a uh, a Tralfamadorian view of things because you get to see all of history at once. You're, you're seeing every single layer of the history of this canyon all at one time when you're looking out over the, the canyon. You don't, you don't have to like look in a book to find out what happened. You can see it all at once, which I just find is interesting because the Grand Canyon comes right on the heels of us learning about these telegrams that the, um, that the Tralfamadorians use. I like that. I think that's a, a cool little thing to notice. Um, yeah, I uh, I don't have thoughts yet, so come back to me. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, John? Okay, well, <laughs> I'm going to say everything in this podcast was beautiful and nothing sucked. <laughs> and if, if you didn't like part of this podcast, just uh, you know, ignore the awful times and concentrate on the good ones. Um, yeah. I know how this podcast ends, which uh, which ends when Adams hits the the wrong Skype button and the universe explodes. Well, why doesn't he just not hit that button? Well, Matthew, that re- that moment has already happened. That that moment has always happened. That's that's how the podcast ends. <laughs> this podcast was always already ruined. Right. Um, I just want to, uh, uh, I guess, for my last thought, I want to just highlight that Rosewater. When Rosewater decides he's he's going to behave nice 
to people and act in a loving way. It's the it's the most robotic simulacrum of kindness uh, that you can imagine, almost without any any actual content, and consists mostly in parroting people's words, uh, parroting people's words back to them. And in a um, in a uh, chapter that's concerned with the uneven distribution of kindness and cruelty, uh, the the unjust distribution uh, of of hardship, um, it's a little bleak that the alternative is so, uh, you know, I don't know, so empty of content. I mean, I I like that Vonnegut um, sort of uh, was pointing out how people repeat the same words over and over again and how it's uh, meaningless and, you know, not kind at all because Vonnegut would never repeat the same words over and over again to, you know, create some sort of effect that, you know, that's not his style. He does not repeat anything. And that's me being ironical, which isn't a word, but <laughs> I think it is appropriate. I'm being deadpan. You, don't you I'm think, yeah, don't you think it's odd uh, how after every death he points out that it's a death that they probably doesn't? <laughs> 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 so it goes. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So let me uh, just lead us out of here. Uh, I've been been hyping it for a bit, and I think we're getting ready for announcement pretty soon. But one final thing. Uh, we're getting ready probably about six weeks from now from starting our next book club. Uh, so I hope people are looking forward to that. We'll, we'll be doing an announcement soon. Other than that, uh, it's just time for us to repeat the same words over and over again. Uh, join us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve. Hey, can we say anti-time again? I never get to say anti-time. Yeah, Matt? Is that the the wife of Uncle Time? Oh. (laughs) Anti-time, Matt. Anti-time. All right, Uncle Time. (laughs) 